KYW Original Podcasts. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at donors1.org. This week, we take a look at mental health during the coronavirus crisis. It's week four of the virus lockdown. What's been the impact on our minds? When the pandemic comes, your structure um, has crumbled. Having all of this extra time, just the perfect environment. Mass anxiety and isolation. Having the irrational thoughts that, oh my gosh, you're going to get it, you're going to die, you have that thing in your throat. How to cope, we dig in. Then, African Americans are dying disproportionately of coronavirus. This virus tends to have a more severe impact on people who have certain chronic diseases. Why it took so long to notice and how to deal with the disparity. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. It's Easter weekend and the country is on lockdown. Businesses are closed and many feel isolated as mental health professionals see an uptick in usage. There's unemployment, fear and uncertainty that is triggering mass anxiety. So how do you keep your mind healthy as the world battles this pandemic? With me to discuss this Flashpoint is Haider Shaban, a psychotherapist and doctoral student in clinical psychology at LaSalle University. We have Felicia Roche, a suicide awareness advocate and author of a new book titled Unraveled. And finally, we have Melissa Hopley-Rice, a motivational mental health speaker with Michael's Giving Hand. She's also author of The People You Meet in Real Life. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks for having us. So hi, there are some real issues dealing with our mental health that are triggered by everything that's going around us. Could you lay it out for us? I think this issue is going to impact, is impacting everyone, whether you have mental health issues or not. But I think it's, it's particularly pertinent to individuals who already have pre-existing anxiety disorders or issues with loneliness and other emotional disorders. I think those folks are going to be dealing with a lot more difficulty and a lot more challenges. So it's a really complicated situation. And I could also foresee an uptick in the prevalence of trauma after this, you know, because of all the deaths and all the situations that we're seeing now. I wouldn't be surprised if there would also be an increase in suicide rates after all of this is over because of the stress, the unemployment rates, the, again, the increase in loneliness. Quick follow-up to you, Hyder. I mean, for folks who, I mean, this may be the first time that maybe you didn't even realize you had some issues or what have you. And then, you know, you lose somebody or, you know, you're laid off on your job and or just being forced into isolation yeah. and your whole world is turned upside down. Absolutely. It's a it's a very complicated issue. And I don't think anybody is going to escape the, the impact of this. Felicia, I want to turn to you. There are a lot of big triggers happening and isolation is one of them for those who suffer with depression suicidal thoughts. You're a survivor. Tell a bit of your story and tie it to what we're dealing with right now. It is a part of my story. Um, I am a three-time suicide attempt survivor, and I live with suicide ideation. Um, And so one of the things that I know um, could possibly be happening right now are relapses for those who already um, have been diagnosed or live with uh, suicide ideation. Um, For the most part, think about what that is and it's this is what it's been for me. It's been um, a fantasy or obsessive or um, intrusive thoughts of wanting to harm yourself or hurt yourself or to take your own life. And if you think about what's happened with the pandemic, with having to be in isolation, just like with any other addiction, the thing that helps people with addiction is structure. Like that's how we combat it. 
And so when a pandemic comes, your structure that you may have had in order to combat that um, has crumbled. And you will see more people, um, as the gentleman just stated, that you will most likely see an increase in suicide because people's structures um, are falling apart around them and they don't have the structure that was there to put in place to keep them, if they've already been diagnosed and they've already figured out a way to combat their mental illness, all of a sudden that's all falling apart. Um, And they may not have the supports in place to conduct themselves in a way that's healthy for them, that can keep them going, that can keep them with the rhythm that they found that keeps them from relapsing. Quick follow-up to you, Felicia. I mean, this is a time where, especially if you're single uh, or you're isolated from those things, you're forced to stay inside. And explain how isolation can um, kind of bring back those types of thoughts. It happens in ruminating. Right. So if you're not not that distraction is healthy mm-hmm. because it's not. We definitely have to face um, our our triggers. But even if you're moved past that and now you're in isolation and you don't have, again, those those structures in place to keep you from ruminating and having um, and combating those intrusive thoughts, because that's what the illness is. It's not you, you lose control. And so that's a big issue with being in isolation, yeah. which is why people have to find practices to do while in isolation. Yeah. And, and Melissa, you said that dealing with the coronavirus outbreak is triggering for other disorders as well, particularly OCD, because of what they're telling us to do. Well, I actually don't joke, but, you know, my whole life I had these original thoughts about these things happening, and now it is. And you go to therapy to combat that and say, this is irrational, and let's not do these compulsions. And now you're faced with, oh, my gosh, this is really happening. So, no, doing compulsions isn't going to stop it. So I have to take a step back and know yeah, I have to follow the CDC. I have to do what they say, but I don't need to do extra and shower 45 times as a compulsion and put a bottle of hand sanitizer on in one sitting as a compulsion. You know, me touching this corner twice isn't going to stop somebody I know from getting it. So it really does intrusive thought connected to what um, was said earlier. The intrusive thoughts come and they don't stop. And when you don't have that coping and positive outlet that you normally have, it's harder to combat them, but you have to use the skills that you've learned to really face this. Yeah, and you hear this, uh, you know, Melissa, you hear them telling you, wash your hands as often as possible, right. wipe down everything. And, and, right. and I mean, it, it even forces people who've never been OCD to become OCD mm-hmm. for fear that they may sicken a, a family member or an elderly person or someone who, you know, and even take on guilt if it were to happen. The thing with OCD is a lot of people think it's just a cleaning disorder. I don't have specifically OCD cleaning. I have OCD where I have an intrusive irrational thought and do a random compulsion like touch things and even numbers to stop it. So now Mm. I'm finding that, oh, I need to touch this corner twice. And if I do, it will stop it. And I have to literally work with my mind and my skills and say, no, I don't have control. What I have control of is how I keep my family and me safe and how I can use my coping to get through. Hyder, it's a lot for people to take in and deal with. Yeah. Um, I mean, because yeah. you got, you know, they're telling you what you can do. Now they're telling us to wear masks. At first we were told not to wear masks. And there's so much uncertainty. How do you handle it? There is so much uncertainty. And I just want to I just want to echo what uh, Melissa and Felicia said about the intrusive thoughts and how they're, they're more common, you know, now that we're in isolation and now that we have a lot more time. I think having all of this extra time, especially when a lot of it is unstructured, is just the perfect environment for the ruminative intrusive thoughts to, to come to fruition. In terms of the uncertainty, I think this is a, a collective problem. 
this is something that all of us are dealing with. And there is really no, no solution to that uncertainty other than trying to really accept what we know now and, you know, trying to be okay as much as we can with that uncertainty, because really there is no alternative. You know, we can, we can try to fight that uncertainty. We can try to find solutions for that uncertainty, uh, but we just end up struggling with it. It's there and it's there to stay for the time being until the CDC tells us, else, uh, you know, uh, otherwise. What I try to talk with my patients about is, is this idea of having the willingness to, you know, be okay with that, uh, with the uncertainty and being okay with the discomfort that it's bringing. Not to say that we have to like it or we have to like this discomfort, but it's the best alternative. It's the best choice that we have in this situation. If I could piggyback, sorry, we, with Michael's Giving Hand, are actually still doing presentations digitally Mm. with parents. We work with Jefferson University Hospital Fellows, and I've done a few with the schools, and the question I hear is, is it okay to not be okay sometimes? And I say, absolutely. During the day, you're going to have bad moments, and you need to live them, and crying isn't a weakness, and you know, but you have to come out of that and find the coping and the support and using FaceTime for the people you normally talk to for that support and understanding this is part of the process, that you're not weak for having those moments, but using the skills, using the support you have to come out of that is really the most important thing. Yeah, and Felicia, please jump in here because I I will tell you, uh, full disclosure, I woke up a couple of days ago in terror uh, thinking Mm -hmm. about, you know, uh, every person on my timeline (laughs) Had somebody who had been affected by COVID-19, died of COVID, their uncle died, grandma died. It was so much. Mm -hmm. And I woke up in terror. And Mm -hmm. and, I mean, all kinds of thoughts were going through my head. So how do you deal with something like this, Felicia? And and especially with the isolation, you're trying to deal with your thoughts, but then all these things coming in from the outside world as well. Yeah, the thing I'm most I, I find myself most concerned with are those who don't have resources to to possibly like a lot of people are doing um, doing some type of tele teletherapy, or they don't have support systems where they can talk because that's one of the best ways to get through this is that we talk to each other and that we support one another and that we're honest about our fears and how we feel. That's how we process them. Um, and so I am concerned about people who may not have that in place. And um, one of the things you mm-hmm. you can do if you're alone, you know, we have to really educate each other on grounding techniques like we have to be able to train our brains to think more positively yes embrace the discomfort but we have to remain positive and that doesn't happen automatically especially right now that it's almost impossible um with all the fear that's happening and so i i use flashcards like i write them out i write out everything that's going to be okay this is what's going to happen later um just ways to stay positive um grounding techniques sometimes music helps to not watch the news 24-7 because that, yeah. that really is not good for, rumin- you know, that causes ruminating a lot of times. And so just finding creative ways to stay positive and, you know, the term just keep swimming. It's like we have to keep moving mm-hmm. forward. And as cliche as that sounds, there are very technical ways that you can do this and you have to almost in order for us to survive. Thank you for that. And Melissa, yeah. you, you mentioned um, that this COVID-19 actually changed your OCD. Yes. So when things happen, when 9-11 happened, it actually changed my OCD to the irrational thoughts jump onto that. And now I'm obsessing about that. So then the school shootings happen. I'm in a school. Oh, my gosh. Let me do this compulsion to stop me not getting taught in a school when I'm speaking. So now COVID-19, maybe my thoughts are or they really are having the irrational thoughts that, oh, my gosh, you're going to get it. You're going to die. You have that thing in your throat. Oh, my gosh, your chest is tightening. That means you have it. 
do this compulsion, it's going to stop it. You're not going to have it. So really, the thing that happened in the world when, you know, North Korea, just anything that is very high in the media, I kind of attach to. And that's why I, as Felicia said, I love it. You know, news 24-7. I have to limit myself on social media because that's not really the news. I have to go to a specific place. I know the CDC that has the correct update. So with what you're going through, knowing yourself and having the ability to cope with that, but completely, completely changes with the severe things going on. It's coming at you from so many different directions. There's so many different levels to this isolation, cleaning techniques, uh, unemployment, (laughs) you know, uh, social distancing, changing the way you shop at a grocery store. Paranoid if somebody walks behind you too closely, you're like, back up. I've heard just general people saying I've gotten panic attacks going to the grocery store. People I would have never expected. So it's definitely changing how we are. And this is a perfect transition to the next uh, subject area because, Hyder, I mean, people who who didn't have issues or thought they didn't, they are having issues, like Melissa said, that, you know, you're going to the grocery store, somebody coughs and you feel panicked. And and you mentioned this a bit about trauma. You said the T word. How could this cause trauma to folk? You know, people don't even realize sometimes they're being traumatized. The definition of trauma is something that's very subjective. You know, something that's traumatic to me could be not traumatic to you. And something that you think is traumatic, is I, I wouldn't think is traumatic. So I think just generally, you know, with, with our society and nationally and internationally, everybody is going through the motions of this pandemic. Mm. There is a level of distress that is you know, rarely seen. It's it's almost a level of distress that's, that's seen in wars. And so there is going to be, you know, there's going to be direct trauma potentially from, you know, having the coronavirus yourself or having somebody close to you, a loved one with the coronavirus or knowing a loved one who, who died from the coronavirus. Or it could be, you know, like a collateral traumatic experience from like losing your job or or having your friend or your 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 family member lose their job and having to go through the the, the financial uh, struggles and also, of course, the uh, health struggles of having the coronavirus. So I think, you know, we're, we're surrounded by potential traumatic events. And I would want people to know that this is a normal experience for a time like this. It's not Like, we shouldn't have the attitude that I don't want to experience this stress. I don't want to be, I don't want to feel this way because, you know, guess what? We're, we're, it's there and we have to deal with it. And I think it's really helpful, you know, to try and reframe some of these traumatic and stressful Mm -hmm. experiences and and try to view them as opportunities of growth and and as learning opportunities because we're facing a a hard reality. And Felicia, your book Unraveled is about exploring your own life trauma and how to deal. People have to explore this. At some point, we're going to have to deal with the trauma that we're taking on right now every single day. How do you dig into this and actually deal with trauma so that you can be healed? I think um, Heider said it perfectly as far as, you know, trauma is subjective and we all experience trauma and we present it different ways. Um, That's a huge reason why I wrote the book um, so that it can resonate with people um, so that it can be honest with themselves and more importantly, be kind to themselves, right? Like we have to allow yourself to feel the pain 
um, mm-hmm. that it's real, that it's so valid. If you're crying, if you're scared, mm-hmm. if you're afraid, it's so valid. And to process it and not be afraid of it and know that you're not alone. Those are very important coping mm-hmm. tools because, um, and thank you for this platform, Cherry, because I'm, I'm hoping what will come out on the other side of this, that we'll have more conversations like that about being honest about our feelings, about how we're processing things so that we're not, they're not coming out in unhealthy behaviors, which essentially is behavioral health issues and mental illnesses. We're not processing things, and so they're coming out in different behaviors. And so what I'm hoping will come out on the other side of this is that people will will, will start recognizing some things that might have been happening to them during this pandemic. It's like, wait a minute, I didn't think I had anxiety, or I didn't know what anxiety was, or I didn't think I had panic disorder. And then the more education we put out, the more platforms are out there to have these conversations and the the wonderful work that Heider and Melissa are doing, that's what's going to move this forward. This is what's going to help more people survive these type of um, traumatic experiences. In the hashtag surviving COVID-19, surviving coronavirus, mm-hmm. I mean, it's becoming, mm-hmm. it's starting to trend here because that's what we're trying to do. And so, Melissa, I mean, it, people who don't know that they are they're learning, they're having these issues, there's stigma, right? Is right. it time Absolutely. to talk about this? Because that's the thing. We're isolated. You're having yeah. issues. You don't know, maybe you don't have a, a therapist. Mm-hmm. And should you be brave and talk about it? Tell somebody. Yeah. So when I speak in schools, you know, we say the one in four young adult battles a mental illness. But what about the three out of four? And the three out of four have external factors affecting them and their emotions. They could have experiencing being depressed, having an experience of anxiety, may not have a diagnosis, but because their parents got divorced, because mm-hmm. they had a breakup. Mm-hmm. Well, here's the COVID-19. Somebody might not have a diagnosis, but guess what? It's affecting their mental health. There are things happening to them that never happened before. So, yes, when I speak and kids come up after and say, thank you for starting the conversation, I want to get help. I want to talk to someone. So what we're all doing here is doing that. We are starting the conversation, like Felicia said, and once we do that, it continues. And then people realize the sooner you get help, the better things will be. So absolutely, the biggest thing we need to do is talk about mental health especially right now. Are there things that are like warning signs? Because you don't want it to get to a point where it's it, you're in crisis mode. And we, we're on week three now of isolation. So we're yeah. going into week four. And this could go on for how, I don't know how long. And so are there trigger warnings? Are there warning signs that people should be on the lookout for? The biggest one for me is the sensation, a feeling of loneliness, especially especially if this feeling starts to become pervasive and it starts to get in the way of your productivity, of getting your work mm. done, of, you know, of your ability to care for someone. I think all of these are, are uh, warning signs. And I think with mental health, we don't want to have a reactive approach to get help after, after something disastrous happens, right? We want to take a proactive approach to mental health. Just like we're doing with the coronavirus, we're trying to take a proactive approach to ameliorate the situation, to stop the proliferation. Yeah, are there, are there things that you should be on the lookout for, Felicia? The prevention is important in the same way that we, we talk about prevention for physical health. Like Melissa was saying, there is a difference between mental health and mental illness. So mm-hmm. if we're, not, we're, not, we're not always talking about mental illness. Sometimes it's just the health of your mind. How do we keep our minds mm-hmm. healthy so that we don't become ill? And um, I think that, yes, there are warnings, there are trigger signs or warning signs um, like hopelessness and, you know, feeling like not being able to be productive. Those are definitely times where you want to seek out help. 
Um, but in the meantime, especially while we're going through this, let's keep our, the same way everyone is pushing for people to get exercise, take a walk, do some exercise in your mm-hmm. home, make sure that you're stretching. We're doing all these things so that our physical health remains intact. We have to do the same for our mental health. And so you can always research and Google ways to keep your mind healthy. And there are plenty of tips out there of things that you can do to keep your mind healthy. Yeah. And Melissa, do you have any quick tips? And then when do you know, you know what, I need to, maybe I need to call somebody and get some help. Right before this, I did a Zoom interview. I'm doing the people in my book. It's actually 30 people I in Philadelphia I met um, who share their stories. And I was with Casey and we were talking and she doesn't have her outlets. You know, she struggled with an eating disorder and I'm talking to her and she's saying, I'm triggered. You know, these things are happening. Um, I do see the signs, but you know, I'm using the skills I learned in therapy and the past to try to come out of that using my support system. So it's really important in yourself to recognize those signs. But if you can't having the people around you, like parents and guardians and whoever is connecting with you, if you're in bed for four days straight, okay. If you know, that's, a sign that you may need help. If you're in bed till 11 o'clock every day, but you get up and you get going, all right, well, this is part of the pandemic and how you're reacting. So I think, you know, you know yourself, you know your kids, you know the things they love. And I think we need to look at that. Um, and, you know, if the signs are there, absolutely to speak up. And there's teletherapy going on. There are the warm lines, you know, suicide prevention hotlines available. Yeah, there's lots of resources. And Luckily, a lot of many of the states have made teletherapy and telemedicine very easy for folks now. Mm-hmm. So a lot of doctors and therapists yeah. are going online. So wonderful. Yeah. Because this is Flashpoint, we do need to wrap this up. I want each of you to give yeah. some resources, give links. How can people be in contact with you for those who need it right now? Because we, I think we all kind of need a friend. We need something <laughs> to do and we need to keep our minds healthy, as you all said so that we can survive COVID-19? The first thing that I would recommend is having a routine, uh, having something consistent in your schedule. Uh, it's something that's, you know, impacting all of us, you know, being at home and, and not, especially if you're not used to working from home. Uh, so having a routine, I think, is something that, that's really crucial. Uh, in addition to that, just like Felicia mentioned, I think exercise is really important as much as we can. And also, I'm going to put in a plug for mindfulness. And, and if uh, folks are not familiar with that, I would encourage I would encourage them to look into that, to Google it, and to uh, try practicing. There, there are you know plenty of resources, of apps, uh, YouTube videos to learn how to practice mindfulness and, and try to be, you know, uh, grounded to the present moment, especially during a time like this. And of course, uh, you know, seeing a therapist when, when you're seeing these warning signs, um, you know, there are plenty of resources for that. You can Google, you can use uh, Psychology Today as a, as a website yeah. to find a therapist close to you or in your state. Take care of each other. Family members have to pay attention to family members. Mm-hmm. And if you notice something, say something um, and um, encourage people to interact with each other. And as much social distancing as we're doing, let's be social. Mm-hmm. Speaking of social, you can find me at therochepost.com is my website, the Roche Post on Instagram and Twitter, and then my name, Felicia Roche, on Facebook. For information, Michael's giving hand. We're still doing digital programs, Google Classroom, whatever works with the school. So if you head to our website, www.michaelsgivinghand.org, you can connect with us. There's an email on there. And I am the people you meet in life on Instagram and the people you meet in real life on Facebook. And just want to say, stay well, and we're going to get through this. Thank you so much to Haider Shaban, Felicia Roche, and Melissa Hopley-Rice for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thank you. Thank we appreciate you. Really 
Next up, the racial disparities of COVID-19. The basis of the disparity is coming from how the virus is manifesting itself. Reasons why African Americans are dying disproportionately and what can be done to deal with it. We'll be right back. If you like what you hear, take a listen to some of the past episodes and Flashpoint extras like my one-on-one with Reverend Dr. Herbert Lusk, a prominent black Republican from Philadelphia who explains why he decided to keep his church doors open on Easter despite coronavirus restrictions. Then, wondering how prisons are dealing with coronavirus behind the wall? We dig in on protocols for early release of inmates. Wonder how courts are doing it? We'll tell you about it then. The racism, classism, and individualism in American society that has been revealed by a battle against this pandemic. Take a listen, subscribe, rate, and review. Oh, and thank you for your support. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. Our newsmaker of the week is the racial disparities revealed during this COVID-19 pandemic. African-Americans account for 70 to 80 percent of the coronavirus deaths in Chicago, Milwaukee and New Orleans. In Philadelphia, where race data is incomplete, black people make up at least 40 percent of the COVID-19 death. But why? With me to discuss this Flashpoint is Dr. Calvin Johnson, principal of Altray Strategic Solutions, a healthcare consulting firm. And he's also a former secretary of health in Pennsylvania. Dr. Johnson, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you for having me, Terry. When I heard the numbers, I was shocked, but not surprised. And we constantly hear healthcare leaders say coronavirus does not discriminate. But to me, it seems like it does. Could you explain these disparities? Sure. And I think your reaction of being shocked, not surprised is is somewhat of a, a common one. The surprise really should be in the fact that we have not acted and considered that there would be this racial disparity earlier on in, in the interventions and find ourselves now with one very important factor, not even collecting data across the board by race. So the numbers that you're even quoting now don't necessarily even reflect the full scope of the disparity. The virus doesn't discriminate from its infectivity standpoint. Where the basis of this disparity is coming from is in how the virus is manifesting itself, both in terms of the rate of spread of the infection and in the kind of medical outcomes. And those are influenced by treatment and access to care. And that's where, again, we know that we've had an existing disparity in this country, both by race and by income. There's a lot of folks who are more exposed. So, for example, I get to work from home. I come into work a couple days a week. But a lot of jobs that black people have, they don't have that luxury. This economy does not run without the people who are getting up every day or leaving their homes every night to go into some place to do the jobs that can't be done, as you indicate, from home or from a recommended distance of six to 10 feet. So it becomes increasingly difficult to isolate or separate in those kind of circumstances, and it becomes increasingly easy to spread infection and become infected. And could you give some of the other factors, because the jobs Black people have, there are a number of other factors that make it more likely that Black people will get infected and then lose their lives from this virus. There's a, a, a term that has been around for a number of years in terms of the public health profession and field, but it's becoming more popular across the board, and that's something called social determinants of health. And what that essentially speaks to is those 
aspects of our lives, of our environments that have a direct impact and an indirect impact as well on our health that aren't related to necessarily a doctor putting a stethoscope on you or prescribing a medication to you. So things like you just mentioned, um, employment, the fact of whether or not you do have employment or not and can afford certain things in, um, in your life, including housing. Housing is another one. What kind of housing, the quality of housing, the location of housing, the kind of work that you do, whether you're able to um, have the kind of job that allows you certain luxuries as opposed to uh, the kind of job, if you are working, that requires you to be in certain risk situations. Food. Are you able to afford food? Are you able to afford healthy food, healthier foods? Are you able to access the foods? Do you have a, a market in your neighborhood that carries fresh vegetables or or are you in a place where you have to travel a long distance to, uh, to get those kinds of nutritious foods uh, and all that's really available to you are calorie-dense, high-in-sugar processed foods? Those lead to other issues like comorbidities that make this virus where in one, one person it's a cold, another person it's pneumonia and death. One of the things that we're learning from this new experience with this virus um, over time uh, is how it behaves and how it interacts in individuals with, as you indicated, other conditions. So what has become clearer to us over the course of these last several weeks is that this virus tends to have a more severe the impact on people who have certain chronic diseases, in particular heart disease, diabetes, and chronic lung disease. And chronic lung disease is a category that includes things like asthma and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, among others. And so when you look, and this is, again, something that we've known for some time, when you look across the health continuum, African-Americans tend to have these diseases in greater proportion amongst African Americans in greater proportion across the, across other racial and ethnic groups. And so when this virus does infect African Americans with those kind of comorbidities, it can have that kind of effect. Now, other people with those kind of comorbidities also are having a difficult time with it. But again, the point is that African Americans disproportionately have the burden of these diseases. And so you see how this interacts in that way. And then you compound that by having the difficulty in accessing uh, services and healthcare, and you have what we're seeing now, again, with the preliminary data that we have, that there is clear, clearly a disproportionate impact, negative impact on African Americans uh, from coronavirus. When this outbreak began, I heard myths about black people not being able to get the disease. That was a myth that circulated heavily and people actually believed it. Yeah, yeah I don't really know where the, the origin of those come from. Uh, some of it's folklore. Some of it is uh, based on real information that gets kind of changed, whispered down the line. But the effect is, is the same and the effect can be deadly. And so you're right. When you get emails circulating around or um, or stories circulating around that if you drink if you drink hot tea or keep your mouth moist, then the virus won't affect you. Or if you're African American, you're not going to get it. Um, those can end up being real, real 
have real deadly consequences. And so the one piece of advice I would offer to anyone is that get your information from a reliable source, yeah. not from an un, uh, unnamed email or, or rumor. The other piece, though, is, is mixed messages. And, and some of that comes from kind of confusion around or lack of clear leadership and who's in charge in terms of um, developing the messages and being consistent about relaying those messages. The other aspect of that, Cherry, is that one message or one general message does not fit all people. So it's yeah, not a one yeah. size fit all. And we've known this for some time. Again, in public health, a key part of, of public health effectiveness and intervention is in health communication. And so you really do have, just like in anything else, whether it's advertising to sell a product or delivering health messages to save people's lives, you have to tailor the message to your audience. Yeah. And I think we have we've not done the best job that we can do in terms of that around COVID-19 and coronavirus. Many people, especially younger people of color, thought even if I get it, I'll be fine. You know, I'll get a cold. It's not right. that big deal. And so you, you compound that with the idea that black people are immune and you have like, you know, a powder keg. And now even now in Philadelphia, we've seen pictures go viral in the city of people at a crab shack in North Philly, people at a basketball court outside of a rec center, not social distancing, not doing the things that are recommended. And I think that is a a result of uh, a few factors. One is the the mixed messaging and lack of clarity in some of the messages being delivered, but also kind of back to the earlier point that that you made in question that you asked about kind of situations and context. You know, the fact of the matter is that we don't know that for some of these people that we're seeing out um, outside of their dwellings when the messages stay at home, that there's no possible way for them to social distance when they're in their home. Perhaps their living situation is such that it is completely the opposite of social distancing. And, you know, and that's the kind of behavior, that kind of concern is not exclusive just to this, the African-American community and saying that people aren't behaving in, in a particular way. We know that other situations or other examples of that have surfaced within the past week. Look at the aircraft carrier of the United States Navy that out in the ocean, there's a situation there where people can't social distance. That was context related. We've heard about this week the, the effect and the concern about prisons and the spread of the virus in prisons where people can't socially distance because of the context of their environment. Well, here we are also in many of the neighborhoods that are are populated by African-Americans, other minorities, and people lower socioeconomic status where the housing is so close that you stay in your house, it becomes, and in your neighborhood, it becomes very difficult to socially distance. And so it's important that our messages take, in the con- take into to consideration the fact that everybody doesn't have the same situation that they are living in and dealing with. And so um, certain messages are just not going to resonate. And so it's hard to, and it's not right to blame people in that respect um, for, for those messages. Now, the flip side of that, and I don't want to, I don't want to let this go is that uh, we all do have a, a real personal responsibility to protect our own health and protect the health of those around us. And so we need to seek information as well as not just passively expect to, to be delivered information. So there, there's responsibility on all sides to be effective in, in curbing the spread of this virus. Why do you think it took us so long to focus on these issues? 
Well, I think there are a few reasons why. One is that this is this particular virus and the way it behaves and so how it's going to manifest in the population, in the communities, is relatively new to us, so we learn something new every day. I think another factor is that we've fallen down in terms of, of our uh, planning around pandemics. There has been a lot of effort over the years that was put into modeling out various scenarios, identifying what are called special populations, and that's a definition that can apply to various groups at various times, depending on the type of disaster or crisis that is happening or the type of organism that is causing uh, the pandemic. Um, there's been a lot of planning over the years since the, the mid to late 90s, but in recent years, that the effort and focus on that kind of planning has gone to the wayside, and we're paying for that now. And so, Without that planning having been in place um, or and constantly updated and considered, when this hit, we're very unprepared for it. Why is keeping race data so important as well? And, and why didn't we do this from the beginning? Keeping data by, uh, by race in this instance and by various kind of segmented groups, by age, yeah. by gender, by location, is all critically important because regardless of what the crisis or the issue is, it's not going to impact or affect all groups, all populations, all locations in the same way. And so therefore, the intervention that's necessary, the successful intervention, isn't going to be the same necessarily in all those instances. And so by having and collecting that information, we're able to better understand what exactly is happening in the situation and then tailor everything from the messages and communications as we talked about to specific interventions, and in this case, testing and treatment to where the, the crisis is, is most impactful and thereby have and derive the most benefit from it. It has not been happening in, in some instances simply because people are overwhelmed in terms, again, with the, with the way this came about, but also because people just have it. You know, there, there are tools and information around data, data gathering, information around data gathering that has existed for a long time. In fact, the Centers for Disease Control has a form um, that, that exists right now, that person under investigation and case report form that has right on the front page, almost front and center, data collection spots for race and ethnicity among age and gender and other factors as well. So there really is no clear reason why that information hasn't been gathered uh, from the start with this and the tools are there to do it. And so um, at this point, now that we know that there's clearly an issue, there really is no excuse for not ensuring that that information is gathered and then applied effectively to get resources to those who need it most in this pandemic. How do we deal with this going forward? I mean, should the federal government concentrate resources in areas like Chicago, Philadelphia, other places where we know the racial disparities exist uh, when it comes to COVID-19? It goes back to to planning and modeling. We know that events are going to happen. We know that they're going to happen at times that they're likely unexpected. We know that they're going to affect different groups um, in different ways. And so the, the, the way to address that is by the constant planning and yes, the positioning of resources in ways and in places that they can be deployed most efficiently and effectively to get to those who um, need it most in those situations. And the foundation of all of that 
is information gathering as well as information dissemination. This is Easter weekend, and I did a story this week. A small number of black churches will be open. What do you say to those pastors and churchgoers giving these stark disparities within the black community? I would encourage, and more than encourage, I would ask those pastors to really reconsider the risk that they are putting their congregations and themselves and their communities on that by doing that. And to please consider being innovative and just as effective by ministering to to their congregations in, in different ways that are safe, that will help stop and prevent the spread of infection, but um, have the same, same opportunity to, to celebrate um, and rejoice um, at, this, at this, this season of the year. So weigh the cost count the cost, please, and do the right thing by protecting the people that are really depending on you. Stay safe. Uh, Dr. Uh, Calvin Johnson, thank you so much for being on Flashpoint. Thanks for having me, Sherry. Next up, bringing hope block by block. I'm just so happy that we could give them something positive in their life right now. How an entrepreneurial pivot during the pandemic is safely bringing joy to families. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to subscribe to the Flashpoint podcast by downloading the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. All you have to do is search Flashpoint. Now, we here at KYW, we are all about community, and one local business is bringing hope back with colorful balloons on the blocks of Philadelphia streets amidst the COVID-19 crisis. Here to tell us more about hashtag coloring Philly with hope is our Patriot Home Care Changemaker event stylist at Florescio Events and that balloon girl, Jacelyn Florescio. Welcome to Flashpoint, Jace. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. And so what exactly is hashtag coloring Philly with hope? I was really inspired by the Billy Penn article about how the kids were drawing rainbow balloons on paper and then placing them on their windows for a rainbow hunt for the kids when they would go outside just to get fresh air. So I am a mom of two boys. So I was like, okay, let's have my boys do this. We drew our rainbows and we put them on front of our windows um, in Fairmont. So I was like, oh, I'm going to put a rainbow balloon garland out front of our home um, to represent hope. And so I did that and I posted up on my social media and it was a positive chain reaction. A lot of people in Fairmont were asking like, hey, like, can you come rainbow our home? And from there, it was just as the community was just coming together from afar. And it was just really nice to to feel that love and support, especially from our neighborhood. So describe it to folks and and how they go about setting this up, because they're like on the port. There's a total of 49 balloons in each garland. We do the color of the rainbow and there's six of them, the red, orange, yellow, green, purple, blue. And then we do a big 32 inch to top it off. Um, and there's no contact delivery. We just strictly just put it on your railing. How many calls have you gotten? How many of these arrays have you been making? So far, we're hitting close to 200 homes now in Fairmont. Wow. So this is this is mm-hmm. actually becoming a thing. Yeah. I, I want to say I almost like we created a movement together. And it's just it's nice that, you know, during this time of uncertainty that even though we're alone and quarantined through this pandemic, that we're all in it together and we're representing hope together and that we're all going to get through this. And so your hashtag coloring Philly with hope, what made you say, you know what, this is what this represents. This rainbow represents hope. 
I feel like rainbows in general, it gives hope. It represents hope. And I wanted to obviously have Philly in there. And I thought, okay, I need to ha- I need to think of a hashtag that really like meaning like the rainbows. I just kind of wanted to make it a little bit shorter. But I was like, all right, let's just do Color Hope with Philly. How does it make you feel when you see, uh, you know, block by block, it's becoming this thing with so many houses joining in? It makes my heart so full and even the backstories behind the balloons, it, it really is so touching and it just, it really makes me happy and it, it make, it's keeping me busy too at the same time. So it's nice that, you know, I'm, I don't listen to the news all day and it gives me something to do during this time, even though a lot of our events and parties and corporate stuff were all canceled from due to the pandemic. So it's just nice to even be, busy during this time. I mean, I feel like this is the busiest that time that we've been um, since we started this business, actually. So it's it's surprising. How do people contact you if they say, you know what, I want to send somebody a balloon array? And, and do you call it something special? Uh, no, it's just a, a, balloon, a rainbow balloon installation. So we are active on our social media. We have um, Facebook at Flarcio Events, also on um, Instagram at com, and also um, the website is where you can also put your inquiries in which is www.thatballoongirl.com When did you fall in love with balloons? I started last year I was into like event styling and then I was like oh I did my very first one it was my son's baptism and it really didn't look anything like what I've done recently but try to do it and after so many times of practicing and stuff you start getting better but from there I kind of just mastered it and now you <laughs> you're selling hundreds of these uh colorful balloon arrays uh all across the city that's amazing thank you thank you so much I'm just incredibly grateful for from from everybody just grateful like my heart is really so full and how these balloons the stories behind the balloons are just so touching and I'm just so happy that I could, we could give them this positive um, feed, like just something positive in their life right now. Could you give me one of the most striking stories that you heard about these balloons? I guess as a mom of two, and um, a lot of the moms feel, you know, they can't celebrate their kid's birthday during this time and their birthday parties are canceled. So it's just nice to hear those uh, really hit home for me. Um, so I really try to go out of my way to do those birthdays um, and make them make it super special, even though they can't have a birthday party and they can't be with their friends. So it's nice, even though it's just in front of their stoop, in front of their home, they can have like a nice balloon installation arranged for them. And this um, little girl, uh, it was just really cute. She like ran up to it and she like fit her little body like in between the installation. And she was just really happy and surprised. Yeah. Because this is a good time. I mean, this this could work for uh, little small gra- graduation gatherings. Mother's Day is yeah. coming up. You know, Easter. I mean, are you busy yeah. for Easter? Yeah, we had a couple um, pastel balloon installations, um, like the Easter colors that they just wanted to have outside to decorate for Easter since, you know, they can't be with their families right now. So, yeah, we've been working on some Easter garlands um, the past couple of days and this weekend coming up. I wish you so much luck with hashtag coloring Philly with hope. You can check out Jace Florecio at www.thatballoongirl.com. Thanks so much, Jace, for being on Flashpoint. Thank you.
We'll be right back. Are you disappointed in the timing of your home care paycheck? Or are you being paid at all? Call Patriot Home Care today and know that your paycheck will arrive on time and that you'll be well paid. As a leading home care provider in Pennsylvania, Patriot offers the most comprehensive benefits package in the state. You can qualify for free health care, 401k retirement benefits, paid sick time and vacations, and time and a half pay for holidays. Who doesn't like that, right? So you can call Patriot Home Care today at 877-535-5550. That's 877-535-5550. Again, it's 877-535-5550. Flashpoint is produced by Cherry Gregg and associate producer Ariane Fulcher. Thanks for listening. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. Now, if there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know. I will walk you through the flames. As the Zen saying goes, if you take care of your mind, you can take care of the world. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.